have a dream that all men are created equal. G'day, g'day. Welcome back, everyone. This is your story. I'm your host, Ian Kath, and this is episode 45. It's been a while. Not putting these out on a regular basis like I was originally, but that's the way it is. Life's getting in the way. Sorry, folks. I've had to go and do a little bit more work, and and it's actually getting a little bit challenging to find people on a regular basis. When I first started doing this, I went through my first tier, so to speak, of people who I wanted to have on the show, all the people I knew in my local environment. And I've slowly worked my way through those people and picked up a few on extra ones on the way. But now that I'm sort of working my way into the second tier of people who know people rather than people I know directly, it's taking a little bit longer to put them together. You'll be surprised how long it takes to actually organise to get together with people. There's the initial introduction, let them settle down with the idea, maybe come around to it organize some dates and times and then get together and actually sit down and do it. it it's amazing i was never aware of how much time and effort it actually would take to pull off one of these episodes and unfortunately i had one slip through my fingers just this week because in the end he was a relatively shy gentleman who decided that he didn't want to do it and i've got to respect that but he sees the value in it and i'm going to every few years just uh, say how are you going and uh, have you changed your mind and maybe one day he'll turn around and do the show with me it'd be an amazing story and i hope i can pull it off one day unlike a current events show where there's always new information coming up i have to actually go out and find people individuals who want to do this but the good thing about this is unlike a current events show where the information has a very quick use by date this is timeless and it's timeless oral history because I noticed that there are still people going and downloading the back episodes all the way back and having to listen to every single one of them. And if any of you out there are just joining and uh, want to go and have a listen to them, there is an archive link at the top of the site and you can go and listen to all the other previous shows. And they are timeless because basically up until that point in time, that is a person's life, isn't it? And it's all the experiences I've had up until then. And there are a few people out there who I actually want to catch up with and see how their life has maybe progressed in time. If anybody out there is interested in knowing particular people and how they might have progressed since you heard them the first time, let me know. Send me an email. And remember, the site is over at yourstorypodcast.com and that's where you can find all sorts of interesting information. And on this particular episode, there's a South Park episode mentioned which I've managed to find a link to so i've actually put that up there on the site so if you want to go and have a look at that episode and get a bit of an idea of what we talk about you'll understand of course you can leave a comment at the end of the post and you can send me an email as well chat at yourstorypodcast.com it's always good to hear from you facebook fan page go and say hello and that you're a fan if you want to get hold of me on twitter i'm at ian kath on twitter you can easy enough to find me and if you do just say hey i'm a uh, listener to the show and i'll make sure that i uh, follow you knowing that you're a listener it's always good about that 
Even though the show has been a little bit unregular lately, and I'm not saying that it's not going to be in the future too, there'll be periods where it'll go a little bit dark, and there'll be periods where there might be a, an absolute deluge of shows. It'll really depend on how things go. One thing I do promise you is I'm planning on doing this for the long haul. So this will be around long time, so it might just go quiet and might bubble along slowly, but it won't go away. It's going to stay there, even if it means that I never monetize it, I never work out any way of actually making any money out of this. This is something that's very dear and very important to me. So I'll continue to do it as and when I find and all sorts of amazing people that are out there. I just love meeting these people and I have so much fun when I actually sit down to record them. It's a lot of work actually doing the editing on the other end of it though, but you know, it's just a process, isn't it? And I am getting better and faster at it. Actually, I'm getting better and slower at it because as I get better at it, I start to see the subtleties in it and I actually want to do a better job. And unfortunately, this is where I came a little bit unstuck on this particular episode because when we went to sit down to do it, there was an air conditioning unit outside and I listened to it and I thought, nah, it doesn't sound too bad, that should be all right. And then when I got home and I listened to the audio, I went, oh my goodness, that's terrible. And unfortunately, the audio of the air conditioning unit happens to be right in the middle of the frequency of our voices, so I couldn't actually cut it out. I did a fair bit of work in tweaking the uh, EQ levels to try and reduce it, and I did a pretty damn good job, but unfortunately it's still there, so it's, it's such a shame. Fortunately, Chrissy has a beautiful, sweet voice, and that cuts through and helps to um, helps to help you to forget about what you're hearing in the background. I hope uh, when the MP3 compression comes through, it's going to sound a lot better than what it currently sounds at the moment. It's a real tragedy, but every single one of these episodes, I learn something new from, and this is a perfect example of what I've learned from this. The site's over there, and I've got to give a plug to Iota Promonet. Remember, the music comes from there, and I found this sweet little tune. It's all relevant to uh, her life at the moment, because that's the way it is, if you can hear the music in the background. So Iota's got all this great music. Go and check it out. And you can also download each tune directly from the site. If you want to, there's a link at the bottom of the site where you can go and find it, more access to it, and download it, buy it, whatever you want to do. Anyway, on to the show. Today's episode is another one of those migrant stories. I remember Adam in Prague saying to me that he wanted migrant stories. Well, we've managed to do quite a few of them of late, haven't we? The ones in uh, Buenos Aires were very much like that, and this is another one. Chrissy decided to move to Australia to do the whole migrant thing because there's somebody significant here for her, and she wanted to chase those dreams. She also talks to us about growing up in a fairly strong Mormon religious community and how she dealt with those challenges and actually leaving it and then moving into a different environment basically moving into more of a counterculture sort of environment where it was quite contrary and the difficulties that is created within her family she's also a musician and teaches music and uh, is an incredibly good little fiddler and you might hear a little bit of music partway through this which i managed to steal from a uh, a little bit of stuff that she put up on the site that i noticed a couple of weeks ago anyway on with the show Here's Chrissy's story. 26th of October, 2009. Hello, Chrissy. Hi. Chrissy Dunaway. Christine. Christine or Christina? Christine. Christine Dunaway. And for you playing along at home, everybody, she's known as Fiddle Girl on Twitter. That's right. I I met you about 18 months ago, Mm -hmm. and... I've sort of been stalking you a little bit on Twitter. Have you? Just a little bit. I haven't noticed. Well, everybody on Twitter stalks each other, don't we? Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Uh, And I wanted to get you on the show because you've got a mutual friend, uh, Cam Riley, Mm -hmm. and I want to chat about your life. Of course, that's what the show's about. I know a few things about you. I know that 
you play the violin. That's right. Fiddle girl. Uh-huh. I know that you come from Seattle. I know that you're a an ex-Mormon. Mm-hmm. And you're living here in Brisbane. So I want to talk about the, the differences in culture between the US and Australia. Oh. So okay. there's quite a few layers to this. Yeah. And I know when I first mentioned that I wanted to do this, that you know, you thought, you know, what's there to talk about? But there is, there's quite a few things. Okay. So first of all, just to come up to speed, why are you in Brisbane? <laughs> I'm in Brisbane because um, I followed my heart first and I followed a man. Love. 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 Yeah, you know, actually students ask me, well, why are you here? And I would say, it's for love. <laughs> well, it is, isn't it? Yeah, it yeah. is. Yeah. So give us, the, give us a drum on how Cam and you met. Oh, okay. Because so that's an interesting story in itself. It is, and it's it's like a movie. Sometimes I have to pinch myself even now. But um, we met in Corsica in Ajaccio, Napoleon's birthplace. And it was at an international Napoleonic Congress. I would have never dreamt in my whole life that I would have ended up at a Napoleonic Congress. Um, so Cameron was there because he does a Napoleon show uh, with David Markham, who is the president of the INS, International Napoleonic Society. And uh, I had a friend, I have a friend in Seattle, Sean Richards, who composed a musical based on Napoleon, and Sean and I met in a really kind of strange way too. But I had done some uh, violin and viola recording tracks for his music, and he had um, another woman do the soprano singing. Well, he was invited to be a presenter at the uh, Napoleonic Congress in Corsica, and the woman who sang couldn't come, and he said, you know, Christine, I think you, you sing, don't you? And I was like, ah, kind of, <laughs> in kind of a former life, um, but I can. Um, my primary instrument's the violin, but yeah. Um, I said, trip to France, I sing. <laughs> <laughs> so we went, we went to Paris first and then uh, uh, to Ajaccio, and I met Cameron the first night we um, all had a big kind of dinner together, all the participants and presenters. Um, <clears throat> so we met and it was, um, we were instantly pretty interested in each other, I would say. And I think the breaking point is after dinner, uh, a few of us were kind of walking around and um, I had a goal that trip to smoke a Cuban cigar every night, <laughs> every day, <laughs> which I think I pretty much did. Um, and so a few of us had cigars and I offered uh, to share my cigar with Cameron and I think he was pretty interested at that point. And, you know, it took a few days, we got to know each other and I think after like the second day of really hooking up, um, we were talking about moving moving to Australia. So well, it was, wow. yes. You didn't mess about, did you? No, and it was it was just such a strong thing for both of us. Okay. Um, just a strong connection and we both just knew. So all but love at first sight. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Okay. And and thanks to Napoleon. And yes. David Markham man. So all of a sudden I'm a huge Napoleon fan. <laughs> and I've become a bit of a Napoleon fan too because I've been following mm -hmm. David Markham and Cam's Napoleon Napoleon podcast. And mm -hmm. if if you anybody out there's listening and you haven't listened to the Napoleon podcast, go and do it. You'll actually learn something about 
you know, this man who was around a long time ago who we had a lot of opinions that aren't valid growing up with the British system. Uh, it's a great, great series of podcasts. How did you get to Seattle? Because you're not originally from there, are you? Where did no, you grow up? I grew up in a small town in southern Utah, Cedar City, Utah, uh, 20,000 people, um, very isolated. Um, and What sort of community is that? You know, like it's pretty desolate, isn't it, Utah? It is desolate, and the nearest metropolitan area from Cedar City, Utah, is Las Vegas, which is um, two and a half hours away when I was growing up. It was like three hours away, speed oh. limits and whatnot. Yeah. Um, so very desolate, uh, set in a high mountain desert climate, settled by Mormon pioneers. When I grew up, I would say 85% of the population were Mormon. Okay. So, and you were raised as a Mormon as well? Absolutely. Okay. Mm-hmm. Tell us a bit about Mormon. About Mormonism. Yeah, what does Mormonism mean, you know? Ah, uh, Is right. it a Christian religion? Well, that's a, it, it, it is in that they believe in Christ as their Savior. They accept Christ as their Lord. And um, it isn't, it, it isn't, here's how I often explain it, Christianity with a capital C because they have really a very different um, take on Christianity than mainstream Christians, I would say, in that they have their own scripture, they have their own book, the Book of Mormon, which Joseph Smith um, supposedly translated after he was led to by God, he had a vision, to some uh, golden plates, dug them up, translated them with um, a couple magical stones. Have you seen South Park? No. All about Mormons? Oh, it's actually really accurate and hilarious because uh, everybody should see the South Park All About Mormons. So yeah, they had their own um, book, the Book of Mormon, and which they regard much more um, highly than the, the Bible itself, although they do read the Bible and believe in the Bible as well. So yeah, they're not they're not mainstream Christians. Uh, they have their own shtick. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're not. Gonna, this isn't a religious podcast, so we won't go deep <laughs> into the religion. But what was it like for you now? And you've been out. Let's cover this in two ways because you've got an outsider's point of view now. That's right. But what was it like when you weren't an outsider? When you were immersed in that culture. What right. was it like growing up in that? And, and what age were you in it until? Well, I mean, from birth, uh, my, well, I, I kind of have a little bit of a different story in that my father realized that my the Mormon church was kind of a uh, web of lies um, oh, okay. and didn't accept the Mormon church probably about the time I was born. And my mother and father were married until I was, um, oh, I think 10 when they divorced. But it was a very um, tense relationship. But my, uh, he kind of just stepped in the background, never went to church with us, but stepped in the background. and. Um, so he didn't necessarily agree with it, but he played along with it for the sake of happy families. Right. He didn't want to rock the boat. Yeah. And uh, I'm sure that he realized that that would have been the end of... His relationship with my mother. Um, I'm the baby of five children. So, for all intents and purposes, you were playing Mormons. You mean oh, you, yeah. you, you, you're fully uh, immersed complete, in it? Completely immersed. So, what's, what's that like? What's, that, what's it like being a Mormon? Because I've actually heard it's a really good life. You know, it is. Good community, strong community, great right. families, all that sort of stuff. So, I see kind of a 
two-sided thing to it. Um, it is a great life. Um, strong communities, strong um, kind of grassroots um, support, and I don't know. It's it's like if you're in the fold, you feel comfortable, you feel accepted, you feel um, busy with a lot of Mormon activities. Really, kind of um, a lot a lot of positive things happening. Um, the other side of it is you don't have a choice. If you think something differently than what you're taught all the time, you're often ostracized. So uh, I think that I had a lot of like little thoughts growing up and I was definitely a different person. Um, I wasn't your typical Mormon girl in that I was quite vocal. I was quite, um, I don't know, just out there and wanted to, wanted to express myself in a different way. And it wasn't really accepted um, in the, Mor in the Mormon what, what age did you start behaving like that? Oh, I think I've always been like that, in oh, a way. even when you're like a little thing? Yeah. Ah. I mean, I've always been uh, the crazy, curly-headed, redhead type person. <laughs> I don't know, just out there doing my own thing. Um, and I felt like I had a need to differentiate myself from everybody else because it's so, every everybody in Utah looks the same, acts the same, um, it's very mono, monoculturistic. So you're one of these independent people. Yes, and I'm yeah. always, I mean that's just me, I'm very independent. What about your siblings? Are they still in the church? Um, I have one brother who, I have four other siblings, two sisters, two brothers. One brother who uh, left the church after I did, um, he and his wife did, they left the church. Um, they've all been on Mormon missions, which um, is, they, you know, you go to a different place, um, different country, really, um, or in the United States for two years and preach the gospel. It's a very um, com committed thing, but everyone does it. Like, if you don't go on a mission and you are Mormon, people think something's wrong with you, you're not righteous enough. Um, you're evil. <laughs> evil. <laughs> no, 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 not evil, but you don't have your priorities in the right place and you're not as well accepted. Um, and the whole thing about the Mormon church is acceptance, I think. You want to be accepted by those people and there's a whole, there's a whole culture surrounding that at school, everywhere you go. When you grow up in Utah, you know, 85% of the people, depending on where you live, um, are Mormon and you um, you're really ostracized, like I said, if you go against the grain. So do you think there are a significant number of people who toe the line, even though they don't necessarily really believe, they question oh. it, but hey, life is so comfortable here, we'll just do it? So my other brother is like that. Okay. He, I think he gets it. Um, he often is a little bit of a rabble-rouser. He reads the books that you're not supposed to read and that the Mormon uh, prophet says do not read. One example is Under the Banner of Heaven by John Krakauer. Wonderful book. Amazing book. Love it. And I please, if you ever want, want to understand Mormonism, go and get it. Oh. You know, even if you just want a really good read, 
Yeah, that's it. It's good for that too. Right. He's, I, he's a tremendous author. I've read all his books. Yeah. He's probably my number one favorite. Yeah. He's yeah. just great. Yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, my other brother, um, who's still in the fold, reads that. But he has a family. He has a uh, wife who is a little bit um, uh, ha comes from an important family in Salt Lake City, and her dad is one of the up, higher ups in the church. And so I think. Um, he just doesn't want to rock the boat, and he wants to keep his family together. It's a good life, you know? It's a good life being a Mormon. But he's really fascinated by, like, um, all the untouchables, alcohol and coffee and stuff, and constantly is talking about it. It's really funny. <laughs> really? So, yeah. so do you think there's any envy of your lifestyle, the fact that you've broken free? A little bit, but um, at the same time, he just is trying to keep it together. I'm, I'm often wondering what's going to happen with him eventually. When once the kids grow up and yeah, all that but sort of stuff. Yeah, there's... But, you were saying, you know, are there a lot of people who toe the line? And that's what's interesting. I think there's a strong brainwashing factor happening, obviously. So these people, they live a good life. They're accepted. They have this strong community around them. Interesting thing, my brother, who left the Mormon church with his wife, moved from Richmond, Virginia to Dallas, Texas. He didn't go to church, but he was like, you know what, I can tap into this community and they will rally around me. It's like if you have any need, the Mormons will rally around you and they're really service oriented. Mm. And so he was accepting help from these people that he never went to church or anything. <laughs> so I think he kind of stopped doing that in Dallas because he wanted to make a clean break. But. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, I've heard that it's very much a barn-raising sort of culture, you know, they just all rally around together. To they do, and you know what? I love that model. Mm. I love it. I think that we need to kind of take that model and that and apply it to all sorts of organizations, this idea of volunteering, a grassroots movement, and they really have it completely well organized, mm. and they can mobilize so quickly you know, Hurricane Katrina happened. They were one of the first people on the scene. They had pre-made hygiene packs for everybody, blankets, basic survival stuff. They had those pre-made and they make them every week and like the women make them in their, um, they call it the Relief Society. The women get together, they tie quilts, they do all this stuff. And I think it's such an amazing wow. model. That's a wonderful thing about the Mormon never Church. never heard that. That's a great idea. Oh, well, I've been thinking about maybe writing a book on that model, the Mormon model, but to apply it to all sorts of volunteer right. organizations mm -hmm. and stuff like that, mm -hmm. yeah. So why'd you leave? Because it's all lies. <laughs> the philosophy behind it. Yeah, so here's here's why. I, as a 17-year-old, um, I was fed up with Southern Utah. I needed to get out. I really just, something inside of me, I had to leave. And so even though I didn't think it was possible, I became a foreign exchange student. I went to Munich, Germany for a year, my senior year of high school. I lived with a German family, went to a German school had an amazing experience. So here's this girl who's been living in a bubble in the middle of the high mountain desert <laughs> her whole life. And I just had to break out. I've always had this fascination with different cultures and different languages and have studied several languages. I was close to studying linguistics in college, have a minor in German. So I, I broke out and I lived with these people who I just loved. They were great people, but you know, they drank coffee, they drank tea, they drank beer. 
<laughs> the German. I've got Mine. to drink beer. Oh yeah. yeah. But I I looked at these people and I saw the good in them and those things that I mentioned are completely taboo in Mormon culture. And in fact, people if you if you're seen with a cup of coffee, the coffee, they will judge you. And I don't care what people say, you're judged. I used to judge people. I thought it was really evil. And I was brainwashed in that If you drink coffee, way. you're a bad person. Yes. Defines your personality because of your actions. Yeah, you're doing a really terrible thing. Yeah. It's like akin to stealing or something. You know, it's mm. very, it's very bad. So I thought that was the first layer um, of the onion that I unpeeled. I was like, this is not right. They're not bad. Coffee and tea aren't actually bad for you in moderation. In fact, tea is can have some really good health uh, characteristics. So, yeah, I mean, it was that one thing and it, that just led me on a path of peeling back all these layers when I finally realized that this is just a web of lies that I've been taught my whole life and I couldn't, I couldn't, there's no going back. It's like in the Matrix, do you take the red pill or the blue pill? Because I could have made it easier on myself in regards to my family relationships and uh, friends and stuff. I really have no touch. I'm, I'm not really in touch with um, any friends that I grew up with except for um, a few. One of them who's gay um, and left the Mormon church and one of them who never was Mormon. So yeah, I really kind of, I had to go out on a limb and do So what that. was it like returning to Utah? after your year in Munich, and then going, wow, it's all changed. Yeah. And how so, long did it take to actually extricate yourself out of there? Well, I really knew um, in Germany. I, I, at first I was taking like two trains and a bus every Sunday morning to go to church. Um, and I stopped doing that after I started realizing things. And so I was really, I, I had realized that it was all just a big fake. And so I went home. Um, first of all, nobody was interested at all in what I had experienced abroad because it's all very uh, colloquial, I guess. Um, so if I would say, oh, in Germany, this happened to me, people would be like, um, oh, yeah, well, how about the weather? Or <laughs> talk about football or something. Let's, let's keep talking in our bubble. Yeah, it's like, you know what? That's outside. That's not comfortable for yeah. us. We're concerned. We're just kind of narrow-minded here. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. On the way home, my my mother and my sister picked me up from the airport, and we had a four-hour drive to Cedar City. Um, and I kind of stupidly, I guess, in hindsight, just kind of talked to them about. It. I said, you know, I see all these missionaries around, and I think it, they're kind of stripping away. They're they're trying to convert people, and really. In, in essence, strip away their own culture. And so I started with that. I have a beef with this. And it was not received well. And, <laughs> <laughs> and so my mom was pretty much terrified and um, has been on a mission ever since to convert me back, to bring me back into the fold. And she really thinks that I've gone off the deep end. That's what they that's kind of the language mm. they use. You've gone off the deep end. Mm. Um, and 
is very sad for her because they believe that we will be a family again in the afterlife. The righteous of us <laughs> will be a family again. And so they really think that I'm going to be cast into outer darkness and that they will never see me again in the afterlife. So that's a terrible... Um, and she loves you and she believes it. in this yes. so therefore it all falls into place right and luckily for me she hasn't like disowned me or anything but we have a very tense relationship no. that's been hard on me um and it's all because of religion i mean so why not just give in and go back i i just couldn't do that i mean i i can't lie to myself if i if i know something i'm not going to deny it i mean i it's just completely against my nature so, I, I've, cho I've so chosen a hard life in that I have very tense family relationships and they all pretty much think I'm off my rocker. They really do. They, they think I'm the crazy one. I'm off my rocker. I'm an old maid at age 30, never been married. <laughs> Seriously, like the classmates I went to school with, um, they have several kids. My mother is a first grade school teacher. She's taught like several of my classmates children <laughs> so yeah poor old thing I know I'm an old maid look yeah, at me yeah, you, are. You, are. <laughs> you grew up in southern Utah yes and you left the church yeah that actual process of snapping that connection actually breaking free mm. how did that happen like really making a clean break is yeah. that what you're asking yeah my mother went to to extremes of talking to my bishop of the church and saying, can we give her a calling? They call it a calling. Nobody in the Mormon church is paid. It's all lay people. Um, the bishops are lay people. They have their own jobs. He actually called me in and said, this is somebody I've known since childhood and is a very good family friend. And I couldn't say I don't want to talk to you. He said, I have a calling for you. I want you to be the primary, the children's, chorister, they have a primary, um, they have singing time. Uh, Mormons go to three hours of church, so an hour for the kids is just the, they all get together, they sing, they read scripture and whatnot. And I said, oh. So this was a, basically a, a asking you to be a volunteer yes. job. That is what I do. To give you a purpose. A purpose. I'm musical. Yeah. I love children. But this is to give you a purpose within the church yes. to entrap you. Absolutely. Exactly. And you know what I did? I couldn't say no to him. I was 18 and I just, I couldn't do it. And I said, okay, I'll do this. And so I wouldn't go to any other meetings and I would rock up at the church just in time for me to teach these kids how to sing and how to sing church songs. And I did that for like, oh, I don't know, <clears throat> maybe three or four months and I finally went back to him and said, look, I can't do this. Because everyone would say, well, oh, why don't you, why don't you come to the next meeting with us? And I just said, mm, no. I kind of just snuck out of the church and went, went home. And I just said no. And um, finally I just said, look, I'm, I can't do this anymore. And so uh, from then on, I never stepped foot inside an LDS church. I couldn't do it. It was really... So that, that act that he did basically pushed you to drink. Yeah, I mean, I was teaching these kids, I was teaching them music, this is what I do now, it's kind of ingrained in my character to do this, but 
everything else just completely rubbed me the wrong way and not only rubbed me the wrong way but brought up a lot of bitterness and anger inside of me every all this Mormon talk and I saw these kids basically being brainwashed and I couldn't do it anymore and um, so I made a clean break and I never went back um, so they did try their hardest to hook me again mm. and let me see the light so and they still are by the sounds of it too oh they are um, when I moved to Seattle my mom had my mom contacted the bishop of the ward that I was supposed to be in and they called me they had missionaries come one time <laughs> I was I so I lived um, alone I was a single young female living alone it was dark and I had a knock at the door nobody ever came to my door unless I knew they were coming um, and I looked out I could kind of look through a window and it was Mormon missionaries and I opened the door and I said what are you doing coming unannounced I said I do not accept visitors unannounced and I just said look if you want to come call me first and then we'll talk about it but do not come to my house unannounced this is I'm it's dark I'm single I'm living alone like it's religious stalking oh it's completely that way oh Mormons are all about the stalking and they catch you off guard that's a that's their whole thing they catch you off guard you're not prepared they ask you questions that normal people don't ask each other. What do you believe in? Why don't you believe in God? You know, mm. you and I have met. I didn't ask you, do you believe in God, Ian? It's not important. So, but for them it is. <laughs> for them it is. And they yeah. ask these questions, and I've had to just learn how to say, you know what, um, I'm not pre prepared to have this conversation right now. Yeah. You, you, just because you ask it doesn't mean, you're, doesn't mean I have to answer. It doesn't mean that you have a right to kind of intrude in my life, so. So you got to Seattle. Yeah. How did your life change? Well, I. What age did was, you get there? Well, 22, and it was uh, it was amazing because all of a sudden I had the room to be myself. I was away from my family. I was in this really vibrant city. Um, I didn't have Mormons chasing me all the time. I didn't have Mormons all around me looking at me and judging me. Um, so. It was just an amazing opportunity for me to grow into myself and express myself in the ways that I wanted to. And yeah, I mean, and I is really... Is Seattle a good town for doing that? Yes. Seattle is... One of, I, it's just one of the coolest towns in the United States. Um, highest literacy rate in the United States. It's a, it's a city full of geeks, essentially. We've got Microsoft. We've got um, Boeing, Boeing, Amazon. It, it's it's very a technological city. Um, so it's I, I it has a huge atheist rate. It's a microbrew capital of the world. I don't know if you're aware of that. I no, became I a huge beer drinker in Seattle. <laughs> well, you would have had an introduction back in Germany, wouldn't you? Oh, I did. That was the that was the seed. My first taste of alcohol ever was actually at the Oktoberfest in Munich. Under some peer pressure, I went with my classmates, and wouldn't be a better place to do it. Oh, it was, it was ideal. It was ideal. Yeah. yeah. So Seattle, back to Seattle. Yeah. Yeah. Microbrew culture. Microbrew culture, coffee culture. I mean, I just felt like I could do all these things that um, even if I wanted to do in Utah, weren't it wasn't at your fingertips. And I, I finished my university education there. Uh, 
went to the University of Washington, got a degree in um, violin performance, music, taught my way through school. I mean, I was really, um, the students are poor, I was poor, but I just started teaching to uh, kind of um, make a living and make it possible for me to go to school and uh, that I never wanted to start, stop doing because I was just so passionate about teaching children violin. So. And is that your calling, for want of a better term? You know, is music your passion? It's, yes, it's my passion, definitely. And I have, the thing about me is I have several passions. Um, and it's, sometimes it's a little bit of a identity crisis because I, I love language, I love culture, I love hiking, I'm an avid hiker and mountaineer and um, love traveling, love... Yeah, sure, you, you, All the yeah, stuff, multifaceted, but, yeah. But music, yes, I mean, I never go to a day of work where I don't feel like I'm making a difference in a child's life. And I see these children come to me and they don't really have their own identity yet and they start playing the violin and I'm a very picky teacher. I have a high high expectations for children but nurture them along so that they reach a high level of playing and I see these children all of a sudden identify they, they identify with the violin they create an identity and they realize I see it click where they realize oh wow I'm a, I'm a violinist and that's a special thing and it changes them and it teaches I, I often say violin is life to my students. The process of learning this really difficult instrument teaches them all the lessons that they need to learn in life, really. Um, it teaches them perseverance. It teaches them how to break problems down into small steps. It teaches them beauty. And that actually is my main goal in teaching the violin. I want to teach children how to recognize and appreciate and experience beauty. So I, I feel like there are a lot of different ways that people go about this and this is my way. This is what I can offer these children that I teach. So I teach Suzuki Method which starts at a very young age, three and four. Generally I'll start at age four but I teach in the children department, you know, all the way through high school. Okay. And then I teach adults too. In 30 words or less, what does the Suzuki Method mean? 30 words or less. Um, Suzuki Method is based on the, the, the language acquisition process from a, of a child. You listen a lot. They're listening to music a lot. You're nurtured by your parents. The parents are attending lessons. They're taking notes. They're teaching them at home. They have a, a teacher but then the parents are really taking careful notes. Some of them learn the violin themselves. They start with the teacher, or they take coincidentally with their child, so they really know how to teach them at home. They have so they learn the violin like they would learn a language. Exactly, so repetition, repetition. Interesting that you're repetition. interested in linguistics as well, isn't it? Yes, yeah, absolutely, and I've experienced that language learning process. I speak German. Um, so a lot of repetition, you don't learn a word and then never say it again. They learn these pieces and they play them, really serious Suzuki students will play every piece they've ever learned in the Suzuki repertoire every day. And kind of just your um, average student will play everything throughout the course of a week. 
So they have an act active repertoire. They don't learn to read music in the very beginning. Violin is so complex physically to get a good sound, to not sound scratchy and squeaky, to get it in tune. We don't have fretted instrument, a fretted instrument. Um, so to get them physically where the muscle memory is there and where they're making a good sound, where they're aware of the sound, they're aware of the intonation, and then we introduce music reading. I, under, I do music reading from the very beginning, though. I'm a little bit different in that regard. I do it away from the instrument. Note identification, fingerboard geography, so they know exactly what finger, what note it is. And then it's a really seamless process when they're uh, ready to look at the music and start reading the music. Um, at least they have the foundations set. They have a good sound. They can play in tune. They're comfortable with it. And do you find they learn well? The kids learn well? Oh, yes. I mean, kids kids are sponges. They learn anything. It's just a matter of being in the hands of a good teacher and having parents who are committed to it, I think. And you also perform yourself. Yeah. What's that like? What's yeah, And I want to talk a little bit about, well, you know, we had... When was it we had dinner or lunch a while back or a drink or something and I, and I said to you that I have no idea what the world of an orchestra is like. Ah, oh, right. And and I was wondering what's that like? You know, what's the what's what's a day in an you know, because are you performing are you doing some work here with the Christmas Symphony Orchestra right now. Okay. Um um, okay, we, are, so we only see them at the end, you know, when they're performing. We don't yeah. see all the stuff before that. You know, what's that world of professional orchestras like? Well, let me just first say that I, I made a conscious decision to not be a professional orchestra, orchestral musician by, by trade because it's just not in my nature. These people basically are alone practicing their instruments for four days, four hours a day, uh, minimum, and they sit in the orchestras and are guided by the conductor. So they don't have very much artistic freedom. Um, And I'm just, I like people. I like to talk to people. I I love being around people. I I love to teach. So I made a conscious decision. This isn't my path. Um, But having said that, I love playing in orchestras. Um, So uh, an orchestra where we meet once a week and we do, uh, I think it's a two and a half hour rehearsal, is perfect for me. Um, Being in an orchestra, so I think my first orchestral experience was in middle school, what we in the United States call middle school, um, sixth grade on. Um, It's pretty amazing. We all have our individual instrument, but really we're creating this huge sound and very complex and intricate music but it's like we're breathing together we're playing together we're not concerned about our individual sounds so much and being a soloist but we're it's this huge team it's really amazing and the conductor (laughs) conductors are a strange breed they're often egomaniacs they're often big fat jerks (laughs) sometimes they're really amazing sometimes they inspire sometimes they discourage, but um, they they have, they're the boss. Is there a huge team building thing that go, goes on with an orchestra? So, you know, or, or are the professional orchestras just technicians who are there to do a job when it's over, they go home and that's it? 
You know, it is kind of like that, I would say. Generally, in professional orchestras, I think it's the rare conductor that will foster um, morale within the orchestra and community within the orchestra. But I think at a professional level, it's very much just like any job. Um, most people don't really hang out and are buddy-buddy with their coworkers. They, yeah. they go to work, they play, and they leave. In the orchestra I'm in, which is not paid, although I was in a professional orchestra in Seattle where every player was paid, this orchestra I'm in now, it's different. I want to be friends with everybody. And we genuinely, the music is, uh, playing the music together is the experience. It's a great experience for everybody. And we do it because we are chasing after this experience in the music. But I don't ever want that to be a job. You know, I don't want to, um, I don't want the love of that music to be stripped away from me. Yeah. Um, that, that was another thing. I just, uh, people who are playing in orchest orchestras, professional orchestras as their job, have very little job satisfaction across the board. Um, freelance musicians have extremely high job satisfaction. So, But they have the difficulty in getting continuity of work. That's right. So, you know, so, you I, know it swings around a bit. And that's the same with most industries. You know, you'll have a freelance component yep. and you'll have the... You know, You're a freelancer. Well, very much so. Yep. Yeah, I have great periods of work and they're mm -hmm. wonderful. But then there are, you know, but I could be like in tenure with some company, but you'd be just doing it by road. Exactly. You know, it's the you same sort of thing. Yeah. Are, yeah, yeah. We're, we're chasing the same thing, which is independence and we do what we want to do. We but take with the continuity. Work. Right. Yeah. And that's right. challenging. But my bread and butter has always been teaching because that is a more or less cure thing. You, you are teaching children. If you're a good teacher, you keep the students. It's a, it's a weekly gig. Yeah, for several years, if all goes well. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. And I had students that I'd been teaching for six and seven years in Seattle. So. so you develop all these students, all these contacts, you get all this work, and then you unplug and you come to Australia. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's definitely happened. To avoid, basically. You know, there was, you, know, you had to start again. How, how has that been? How's the transition been? Well, you know, I've jumped right in. And... I'm kind of surprising myself at how fast things have happened with a lot, with a few really great stro strokes of luck. I took over a studio of a guy who's been teaching here for several years and just moved to Melbourne and um, another teacher, a Suzuki teacher, this other woman who's getting married and moving to the Gold Coast at the end of the year, phenomenal teacher from Japan and I'm she's sending her Brisbane based students to me. Wow. So a stroke of luck, but um, I've also taught now at two music festivals. I just taught, I got back last night from um, the Gold, uh, sorry, Sunshine Coast uh, Festival where I taught American fiddle. Because <laughs> I love to, I love to open kids' worlds up to new music and fun music and stuff that really gets them going and inspires them, gets them out of the routine of only classical music and Suzuki repertoire. So. Yeah. yeah. So you, you're powering in that regard. You, know, you seem to have settled in quite well. What's what's your perceptions mm. as you settle into Australia? What are your perceptions between of Australia from America? And now that you've been here a little while, are you starting to perceive the US from an Australian point of view? Right. What, what are your thoughts on these things? I like the easygoing natures, nature of Australians. At the same time, Australians love to take the piss out of you. 
mm-hmm. an expression that I never knew until I got here, taking the piss out of somebody. Uh, so they, um, the Australians will poke at you and tease you in a good-natured way, where Americans won't. I kind of had to get used to, okay, I shouldn't take this so seriously. Right, right. <laughs> and Cameron does all the time. Yeah. So that's kind of been like, sometimes I just am like, you know what, back the hell off. <laughs> but at the same time... I'm adjusting time, to this, but I'm not quite used to it yet. <laughs> right, yeah, like, this is very ingrained in me, this American way of living, but no, it's great. Um, Australians are really, really friendly. Um, I didn't know how they would react to Americans so much. Americans are hugely unpopular around the world. Um, but I, at the same time, um, they're willing to look at people for their um, individualness and not as, uh, they won't stereotype people so much. Um, <laughs> some, of the, some of the different things is I, th- I think that customer service here is terrible. Yeah. <laughs> um, I rarely go to a restaurant and have decent service um, or a bar. It's just pretty terrible. And people are just more relaxed about working and a work ethic, I think. I think Americans, to their fault, though, are workaholics. And I certainly was. I'm enjoying a little bit more laid-back uh, quality of life, although that may be a Queensland thing, right? Yeah, yeah there is a Queensland element to that. Yeah. Down in Sydney and Melbourne, they work a, a lot more than we do here. Right. For sure. Yeah. Um, a refreshing thing for me is that um, Australians don't identify themselves by their religion, and so much I find as a general. No, as no a general, we don't, and I'm like I've never thought of that. I've never considered that. Oh, it's very much so. I mean, think about it. A politician, if you're not Christian, you will not be voted into office. If you're gay, you won't be voted into office. Um, uh, Part of me is a little bit shocked though. Obama got into office as a black man. Um, Well, he's the first. Hmm. And uh, it's very much, it's just more prevalent. Like, most everybody is religious. And people here, that's more of a private matter. Yeah, well, um, religion, in the political scene, religion is not discussed. That's right. It's not It's not part of the equation. That's it's, right. It's out of the loop. And occasionally it will be mentioned, but it's almost irrelevant. And we've had, you know, basically card-carrying atheist prime ministers. Mm, you know? Right. But, but it's so discreetly said. You know, Bob Hawke was, you know, he famously went, yeah, no. But I don't. But I still don't even know strongly mm. his religious stand, anyway, because it was so irrelevant. But I believe he was atheist. But that's our difference. Yeah, you're, that's you're right. An Aussie that's that's and right. I'm and Ameri- I, and, American. And I've never actually considered that we would even identify mm. our religious personalities. Well, I mean, look but at yeah, look at the former presidents of the United States. Even people, um, even presidents who weren't necessarily religious, will wave the religious banner to get elected or just to kind of build up their image. If you're not a man of God, so to speak, in America, you're not going to be elected into public office. What are your religious views now? Oh, well, I, I've been a hardcore atheist for a long time now. Oh, you'd actually call yourself an atheist? Oh, yes. Okay. Yeah. And 
I'm a very proud atheist and outspoken atheist. If you, you probably see my tweets. A lot of them are unfolding stupid religious things that are going on and very much talking about God and whatnot. So yeah, I, I'm definitely an atheist. In order to wrap this up, I suppose, where are you going the next little while? How, do you, how, how are you settling into the life here in Brisbane? Mm -hmm. And where do you think this might unfold? What are your thoughts for the next little, little while? Well, I kind of, I'm settling in very well, I would say. I'm all about the good weather. I'm, I just, I really love my life here. I like not living in the U.S., actually. There, yeah. I, I feel more at ease. Um, I think that there's a lot of tension um, on an individual level living in the U.S. I was always afraid to go to the doctor um, because if I told him about a problem, it might go down on my health record and then my insurance rates would skyrocket. I was barely affording health insurance on my own and as a self-proprietor in the U.S. I just love the system that Australians seem to take care of their own. So there's more of a relaxed way and I, I just see my future full of possibilities already. People have come to know me in the Suzuki community anyway as um, a great clinician. And I'm seeing kind of a niche that I can build here that maybe have not been possible in the United States for me. I want to start my own podcast show about um, music and try to educate people about classical music. I think people think classical music is just so boring, and really it is. The culture around it is boring. The music itself isn't, and you have to have more of a, you have to develop an attention span to listen to it and just teach people how to listen to it a little bit and how to appreciate it. But also venturing into all different types of music. So I just see, I, I see my life in Australia as all possibilities. Mm, land of opportunities almost. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Sounds like your life's coming together reasonably well. It is, it yeah. is. I'm, I'm feeling... I think I told Cameron this the other day, I'm feeling more like myself than I ever have. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I feel more like Chrissy Dunaway than I ever have. Well, Chrissy Dunaway, <laughs> welcome home. Thank you. Beautiful. Yeah. Thanks for telling us your story. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. Bye-bye. Thank you.